This morning, we will uh, be halfway through our 11 straight weeks walking through the Old Testament book of the prophet Micah. And uh, I, I want to remind us of two key words that we introduce in the beginning of a series in late September. And those two words are spirals and cycles. Spirals and cycles. They meant this in the context. We're going to see an example of the second one this morning. Spirals refers to the reality that for centuries, the people of God have been spiraling downwards, spiritually speaking. They have rejected the promises of God, and therefore they've rejected His blessing. And as a result, judgment is coming upon the people. The kingdom of Assyria has come and destroyed the northern territory of Israel already, including the capital city of Samaria. And uh, as Micah continues to preach, most of the southern territory of Judah has already been taken, with only Jerusalem, the fortified city built on a mountain, remaining strong against these foreign invaders. Spirals, things are ugly and getting uglier going down the tubes. Cycles was our second keyword. And uh, what that meant, what that means is throughout the book of Micah, as he's bringing bad news upon bad news, messages of gloom, judgment of God coming upon the sin of the people, there are these glimpses that God gives Micah vision to see, glimpses of glory, gloom, and a little bit of glory. Those are the cycles. So this morning, we're going to see cycles within the cycle. Three statements of gloom, each one immediately followed by what I'll call a grace note, reminding us that God's promises will be maintained, that grace is never far away, even in deepest pain. Micah chapter 4, starting in verse 9. Listen carefully. These are God's words. Why do you now cry aloud? Have you no king? Has your ruler perished that pain seizes you like that of a woman in labor? Writhe in agony, daughter Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you must leave the city to camp in the open field. You will go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you out of the hand of your enemies. But now... Many nations are gathered against you. They say, let her be defiled. Let our eyes gloat over Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand His plan, that He has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Rise and thresh, daughter Zion, for I will give you horns of iron. I will give you hooves of bronze, and you will break to pieces many nations. You will devote their ill-gotten gains to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. 
when the Syrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, as we said in the beginning, there's so much about Micah that's foreign to our ears, towns and peoples and contexts in a far and distant land, but your word went forth by your spirit through the prophet, and this word preserved for us is spoken by the same spirit at work here. So, Lord, open our eyes that we might see and lead us to worship the only true God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just two headings this morning. That happens every now and then. Your lucky day. Two headings, uh, starting with healing through pain. You've probably heard a version of the saying, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. It didn't originate from Kelly or Kanye in popular song lyrics. It was written in 1888 by the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, and um, it, it's, it, it's popularly used today. And, and very often, the, the sense in which it's used is sort of a, a defiant statement. Certainly true in those two songs that reached the top of the charts that I mentioned. It's sort of a defiant statement. Um, what you try to do to me hasn't broken me. It hasn't killed me. It hasn't torn me down. It's actually made me stronger. What doesn't kill me makes me stronger. I have survived. I have overcome. And there's a fine line here between, on one hand, this self-reliance with self-glory, and on the other hand, something that is at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hold that thought. We're going to come back to it a little bit later. It, it might seem strange that we're starting in chapter 4, verse 9, in the middle of a, a passage and ending in uh, the middle of chapter 5, but the Hebrew uh, text in which the Old Testament was written gives us these literary signposts, these little boundary markers that help us understand that um, at least the, the, the um, writer, Micah, who received this from the Lord, intended for this to be sort of a little, little chunk, this little passage. And of course, later chapters and verses were added to the Bible, right? So this is the unit that we're looking at this morning. And, and here are the signposts, this cycle within the cycle. There are three sets of the word now, translated in the English, now, N-O-W, each one describes God's judgment coming upon the people. Bad news. But the cycle within the cycle, each one is immediately followed by this grace note, by a glimpse of the salvation that God promises He will bring about. He will keep His promise to have a remnant, a, a, a people left after the exile, a people who will be restored, a people who will continue to bear His name. Here are the three cycles within the cycle, one by one, uh, starting in chapter 4, verse 9. Now, why do you cry aloud? And chapter 4, verse 10, now you must leave the city, you will go to Babylon. The crying aloud, three times we, we read of this imagery of a woman in labor, in the pain of childbirth, and that's coming upon the nation because 
they have to leave. They're going to be invaded, they're going to be destroyed, and the survivors are going to be carted off into exile. That's the judgment. But immediately in the same sentence, end of verse 10, there you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you. Cycle within the cycle. That's the first set of nows. Second one comes in chapter, uh, verse 11, chapter 4, verse 11. Now, many nations are gathered against you. Uh-oh. Uh, the, the Israelites were always known as, a, as a, um, not a very numerous people, a little nation, certainly not big enough to go against the, the major superpowers of the ancient Near East. Now, many nations are gathered against you. What hope is there? Verse 12, the cycle within the cycle, immediately. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand His plan that He has gathered them, the nations, like sheaves to the threshing floor. That's unpacked here. We're not agricultural people farming to understand this thing. So, so here's a picture for you. What is a sheaf? Uh, why, why is God saying the nations gathered around you to attack you are like sheaves gathered to the threshing floor? A sheaf is a bundle of grain. You'd bring it in from the fields after harvest to the threshing floor where oftentimes um, an ox or a team of oxen with a rolling millstone would go in a circle and trample the sheaves, right? That's why the imagery here in verse 13 is, rise and thresh, I will give you horns of iron, you will break to pieces many nations. Here's the hope. Here's the strength God's going to give to His people to rise up against the nations one day. You're going to trample them. Why would you trample the sheaves to separate the, the chaff from the grain, which was the nutrient? And you'd throw up these piles of grain into the air. You'd, you'd build your threshing floor on top of a hill so that the, the action of threshing would enable the wind to carry off the chaff. If you piled up all the chaff, you know what you do with chaff? You burn it. You destroy it. God's saying judgment will come on the nations one day. That's the second now, cycle within the cycle. The third one comes in chapter 5, verse 1. Now muster your troops, marshal them, assemble them. Siege is laid against us. There aren't many troops left. That's not very hopeful. Siege is laid against us. Verse 2, but you. Here's the biggest glimpse of glory we get. But you, Bethlehem, out of you will come for me, one who will be ruler over Israel. He will stand and shepherd his flock. His greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. Here's the question I think we can all relate to. We're going to come back to that rich section, by the way. Here's the question I think we can all relate to. And, and you've You've thought this at the least, if not asked this out loud. You've thought this if you've ever wondered why God does not prevent struggle and deep pain and tragedy from bombarding your life. Why can't we have the part B grace notes of these three cycles within the cycle? Why can't we have the part B grace notes without having to go through the part A suffering? Why can't we taste mercy and forgiveness and rescue and salvation without God leaving us to feel the raw pain of living as sinful people in a sinful world? Why? Haven't we all thought that at some point? 
part of the answer comes with another question that we need to consider. Do you think you're any less deserving of the discipline and the judgment that Micah is preaching to come upon the people of Israel? Do you think you're any less deserving of judgment and discipline? The three nows, look at this next slide. Um, the three now statements of judgment refer to, these are not separate events. These are just layers of bad news, okay? The suffering of the people, like the pain of childbirth, labor, because of the coming exile, you're going bye-bye. You're losing this inheritance. The second now was the picture of the nations gathered around Israel to destroy her. The third picture of now was the siege, likely referring to when the Assyrian army came to the gates of Jerusalem in 701 B.C., and Jerusalem thought it was all over until God miraculously intervened. Suffering, national disgrace, wartime leading to death by sword or death by famine, because when uh, a powerful nation was besieging your city, you, you couldn't be out there farming. There was no food other than what you had stored up, and famine was the worst thing to happen. You started eating each other. And if you survived, that horror, and it was that, you would be sent off to a foreign land to live as a refugee. And yet, this was not Israel's biggest problem. How can I say that? Well, it could be worse. God pronouncing three nows of judgment, layer upon layer of ugly, horrific, disastrous consequence. These were not Israel's biggest problems. How can I say that? Micah chapters 1, 2, and 3 are like a grand jury indictment that the prophet has brought against the people of God. And he lays out all the clear, irrefutable evidence of all their sin. Micah preached, we need to keep in mind, not against the godless nations or the pagan worshipers who would bow down to the starry hosts and this or that God to gain this or that benefit. Micah preached to what we could call the church. Micah preached to those who considered themselves good Christians, to put it in contemporary language. Micah preached, and is preaching still, to us, gathered here on Sunday morning in a sanctuary. He was going after the religious, those who thought themselves safe because, hey, we, we call ourselves by this name. We, we identify ourselves as worshipers. We're not like them. When Micah's people hear these now statements of judgment, they need to hear, they need to see the cause their unfaithfulness, their rejection of God's promises, and then they, let's make that we, and then we need to see that the only way out from under the righteous, just, appropriate judgment of God due, to, due upon our sin is to turn to the one true God, is to recognize He alone deserves worship and adoration, and then to trust that His compassion and mercy are greater than our sin. To jump to the grace notes, the glimpses of glory, the, the part Bs of those cycles, without coming to grips with the reason for all of this judgment, 
to, to jump to part B is the path of easy believism. It is to be deluded into thinking that there can be forgiveness of sin without cost. It is to delude it into thinking that there could be mercy and compassion without repentance, turning away from sin. It is to, to be deluded into thinking that there could be freedom from slavery to sin without the redemption price that is paid, which is very costly. In the Gospel of Mark, you don't have to turn there, but you can if you want. Mark chapter 2. It's early on in Jesus' ministry, but word has already gone viral that there's a, a new healer in town, and he's for real. Jesus is in Capernaum, on the, uh, a town on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and a crowd is gathered at a house where he's at. Well, friends of a paralyzed man desperately want to get their friend to Jesus because they think nothing else is going to work. This is his only hope. They can't get through the crowd. They decide to cut in line by climbing onto the roof and digging a hole. Think thatched roof, right? Made out of branches and leaves. And they lower their friend into the presence of Jesus. He's there. This is what Jesus says. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. And if you're a friend of this guy, you know, you think, I'm in big trouble because I just ruined a house and I got to pay for it. And, uh, but there's exhilaration because you, you made it and this healer might be it. He might be the hope. You're going to be thinking, Jesus, that's very nice of you to share nice spiritual words. That little devotional you just shared, that, that, that's very kind and, and, and it warms my heart, but my guy is crippled. His body is contorted. He's in pain. He can't live life. There's no future for him. He's got little kids he can't provide for. Jesus' words aren't going to cut it. Wouldn't you be thinking that? We, if we've read that story before, we can't skip over what should be sort of the tension. That's not what we came here for, a religious statement about sins being forgiven. But Jesus knows all, and He loves perfectly, and He has absolute compassion and when he sees this man before him broken physically, he doesn't not notice, but he realizes this paralyzed man's greatest need is not to be unparalyzed. It's just not. When he sees this man with full knowledge, with eyes of the Spirit, with perfect love, he sees this man's greatest need because his greatest problem is sin, which is an offense against the holy and eternal Creator. And therefore, his biggest need is forgiveness of sin. And he does what is most loving. He pronounces the antidote through faith in him. Son, your sins are forgiven. What distracts you and consumes your attention? Got to get this. What, what do you believe you most need in your life that's missing right now or that's not quite there as much as you'd like it to be? And the other side of the coin is 
uh, heading in the same direction. What do you believe is your biggest problem that needs resolving that you place above, that you make more important than your need for the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God for your particular sin, the compassion uh, of God for you in your humble state? What do you place above that, thinking that you need that to solve your biggest problems? Whatever it is, either side of the coin, it is what the Bible would call an idol of your heart. You have given that, whether it's a situation or a thing or a person, more worth than the creator of that thing ever intended it to have. And that may not sound horrible. It may just sound like a little out of balance, disproportionate kind of situation. But when you engage in that kind of thinking and desiring and acting, you are engaging in false worship. Does that begin to make it sound a little bit more serious? You're giving things and situations and people more worth than they deserve, than they've been created to receive. That imbalance means you are a false worshiper, which is exactly what Micah is aiming at in chapters 1, 2, and 3. I don't bow down to wooden idols. Oh, no, but you bow down to these things. You give improper worth to these situations. You believe your biggest need is this, and you disrespect and dishonor God, who is your greatest need. If I had this, it would solve all my problems. No, no, no. If you had Jesus, it would solve all your problems. When you flip the script, you're a false worshiper, and everything Micah says is aimed directly at your heart. Your misdirected longings will never be satisfied. Your searching after joy and comfort and blessing and belonging will never succeed unless it's aimed at the new king who will be born in Bethlehem, of whom Micah writes, chapter 5, verse 5, he will be our peace. It's not what this new king can give you to satisfy the desires of your heart. It's not that this new king will make um, it work out so that your plan can thrive and succeed. The promise, in essence, is that what you need, what will totally satisfy you, body and soul, now and forever, is he himself. What chapter 4, verse 8 describes as the restored king what chapter 5, verse 2 refers to as the, the ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old. He's, verse 3, the one who will stand and shepherd his flock, whose greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. He will be our shalom. One more thought back to our wish, daydream, that we could have part B without part A that we could taste grace notes without the judgment and discipline that our sin deserves. Jonathan Haidt is a professor at NYU's Stern School of Business, and he wrote a book called The Happiness Hypothesis. In it, he says this, people need adversity, setbacks, and perhaps even trauma to reach the highest levels of strength, fulfillment, and personal development. I don't know Jonathan Haidt. I don't think he's saying this on a biblical worldview. 
So if psychology and sociology suggest this is true for much of humanity or, or a pattern in general that we see, how much more powerful is the pattern for us who follow Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior? What did Jesus do? How did He live? The healing, blessing, joy that He offers was accomplished only through His suffering and death. That's the only way He could bring it about. The only way Jesus could restore glory to us sinners was through the humiliation of the cross, which I think qualifies as adversity, setback, and even trauma. In the church, whether in discipleship or preaching or teaching or counseling, there should never be rebuke, part A, without pointing to the cross, part B, gloom, glory, cycles within the cycle. There should never be a call to holiness. This is what you should do, how you should live your life, without first standing upon the truth of what Christ has done on the cross and by walking out of the empty tomb. There should never be discipline without the offer of mercy. This isn't just Micah. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We close with, secondly, the unexpected Savior. Chapter 5, verse 2 is the best-known verse in all of Micah's writings. I don't say that as a subjective thing because Micah 5, 2 shows up in the Gospels, in particular, the Gospel of Matthew. So here's the context. Um, You're familiar with the story. The Magi from the east see a star, and they travel to Jerusalem um, and ask King Herod. They figure he'll know. They go right to the capital. Where is the king of the Jews to be born? Herod is, first of all, threatened because he's the only king around, and he doesn't want a competitor. And secondly, he's curious because he wants to act on this knowledge. So he turns to the Jewish religious leaders, and they immediately have a confident answer. In Bethlehem, in Judea, for this is what the prophet has written. And they quote Micah 5 as their don't-need-to-wonder-at-all kind of evidence. The prophet said it. It's in the Word of God. The Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. This is the beginning strand of the unexpected nature of the Savior. Bethlehem was a nobody-nowhere kind of town. When Joshua and the Israelites conquered Canaan in the land of Judah, Bethlehem was not even in the top 150 list of towns and cities that were worth mentioning. And by the way, the Israelites, uh, many of the significant um, cities they inherited, they didn't build it from the ground up. They were like, this place is great. It's got walls already. It's got water source, farmland. Bethlehem was nothing. And by the time of Micah, it still wasn't anything to write home about. But this was the town to which the pregnant, temporarily homeless teenager Mary and her husband or her betrothed, were led to give birth to the baby that she had conceived out of wedlock. A scandal to most, a miracle to the few in the know, because the Holy Spirit had come upon Mary in her virginity and conceived in her womb Jesus. 
giving him divine and human parentage, making him the most unique man ever. His name was a common Hebrew name, Jesus. He was raised with incredibly ordinary surroundings. None of that fit people's expectation of Messiah, whose name Jesus means the Lord saves. This is an unexpected Savior. About a month ago in Minneapolis, 25-year-old Tyler Moon was running his first ever 10-miler. 25 years old, perfectly healthy, trying to get into better shape, and um, he's a man, he was a man of faith. He is a man of faith. And so, instead of typing in his name, he decided to type in Jesus saves so that it would be printed on his running uh, race bib. Around mile eight, Tyler suddenly collapsed from a heart attack. And one of the first people who rushed to his side was a nurse. By the way, he's in the Wheaties. He's not the guy on the right. He's in the Wheaties, okay? That was the best shot that they got, you know, if you ever run a 5K. Um, one of the first people to come to his side was a nurse anesthetist, said it twice, um, who was in the pack behind him, rushed to his aid. His name was Jesus Bueno. <laughs> if you're wondering, his name is spelled J-E-S-U-S, okay? Jesus and a number of other health professionals immediately started performing CPR until the paramedics arrived, and yes, Tyler was saved just not by the kind of Jesus that he was thinking of. (laughs) The Savior is so very unexpected. Here's the, the deeper stuff of unexpected, beyond the facts of Bethlehem and Carpenter's son and his name. The now judgment of chapter 5, verse 1, says that um, enemies will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek. Imagine you're the king of Jerusalem. You're standing in your throne room, in your palace, and you realize it's over, right? It's like end of the the game, the the coach says, you know, no more timeouts, no more fouling, just let the clock run out. And in comes your enemy, the leader of the other army, and he walks up to you, still in your robe, trying to look regal, he slaps you in the face. It's the beginning of humiliation and shame. And worse, in, uh, it's a deep insult in Middle Eastern culture. The enemy will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek. But this unexpected Savior, born in Bethlehem, whose greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, whose origins are from of old, he will be struck on the cheek in the injustness of his trial that happens in the high priest's home overnight before anyone can ever figure out what's going on. He who is deserving of only worship and adoration willingly accepted rejection and mockery by those who did not understand. Chapter 4, verse 10 says that Israel will be exiled, and 5.3 says that she'll be abandoned to her enemies, exiled and abandoned. But this unexpected Savior's worst suffering will not be nails, spikes driven through his body into a piece of wood. 
His worst suffering will, will not be the asphyxiation, which is the way crucified criminals eventually died, not from the wound, but from suffocation, slow, torturous death. His worst suffering will not be either. His worst suffering because he shared perfect unity with the Father from of old, from ancient times. That's the Hebrew word olam, translated everlasting. And when it's applied to God, it always means from eternity on, which emphasizes that this ruler is none other than God the Son, the Messiah, the Lord of all. What will be his worst suffering? That this unity that he has shared with the Father from all eternity past will be broken. He will suffer deepest exile. He will be totally abandoned from, by the Father to the hell of the cross. What Israel suffered, Jesus suffered all the more. He is unexpected. His kingdom is an upside-down one. The only way you and I can taste the benefits of the Prince of Peace, He will be our shalom, is that He already suffered the violence, the divine wrath of the Father on the cross. Do you believe in that? Is that your salvation? Is that your greatest need to solve your greatest problem? If you've trusted in this truth that the Scriptures lay out for us, what doesn't kill you does make you stronger. But not in the way that the songs and these memes on social media mean. It's not because you took your best shot and I'm still standing because I'm strong enough. It isn't, I, I, I pulled up my bootstraps, I, I found some resilience in me that I didn't know was there. And now because I've gone through the valley of, and, and, and fire, I'm hardened. And the next person isn't going to hurt me as much. That's, that's what it often means. But when I say if you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, what doesn't kill you does make you stronger. It is only because it killed Jesus instead of killing you. He was exiled and abandoned by the Father to the hell of the cross so that you need not suffer hell that your sins deserve. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger because it killed Jesus, and he displayed perfect strength that he credits to you now by faith by walking out of the tomb in resurrection glory. You and I cannot overcome our greatest problem of sin. You and I can pretend, but it doesn't solve anything, to say that suffering, surviving suffering, getting through tragedy somehow makes me better. Those are platitudes. That's not true. Death is our worst enemy. A loved one dying is not the way it's supposed to be. Let's not whitewash something that is ugly at core, but we can instead trust that in our brokenness and pain, and yes, even in death, He Himself, Jesus, will be our peace and will be our life. Remember what Micah's name means from week one, if you were around? Who is like Yahweh? Who is like the Lord? The answer, once again, there is none like him, no one. This is the Prince of Peace. He alone is worthy of praise. Let's come to him now in prayer.
Jesus, we marvel at your love for us. We marvel at the lengths to which you have gone, exile and abandonment, that we might be set free. We give you praise this day. Amen.